Hi everyone, welcome to the Idiots Podcast, that's Infectious Disease Insight of two specialists. I'm James, that's Callum, and we're going to tell you everything you need to know about infectious disease. Soon may the editing come to discontinue the Tezo sun. One day when the CRP's done, we'll take our leave and go. Callum, how are you doing? I'm doing great, James. I have been looking forward to this episode for a while. I think we both have. It's very important. And I was thinking about it the other day. I was out. I was at an art exhibition. It was very enjoyable. And I was standing there looking at the, the paintings. And I thought to myself, Callum, right now, you're in culture. You're in culture? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. And then my, and then my head made that pun in the exhibition. And I was like, you're in culture. So that, that was the segue that I was going for. Thank you. All right. No need to put a lampshade on it. Okay. So today we're uh, talking about you're in culture. So that's right. This is a follow up to our uh, episode on uh, <laughs> you, are you laughing at your own. It's so bad. It is really. It's just even for you. It's it's worse than normal. Like they're yeah, just getting true. worse. I don't know what to do. If what you need to do, listeners, is listen to all the episodes and rate the puns, and then and then email it. No, I was just thinking my, myself there that this is probably a topic that is more applicable to a wider range of of people working clinically. Is this a work and, up to another pun? So no. So so we might okay, have people cause... listening to this episode who have never listened before, and they may have already been like, no. That's true. They, um, well, I don't know. Uh, but yeah, this episode is going to be on uh, urine culture and the basics of a test, how to use it correctly, and as part of an ongoing, uh, very loosely connected series of the episodes about the thorny issue of urinary tract infection. Uh, so, Callum, why don't we just sort of drum, jump in? So when... Should you be considering taking urine for culture? That's a great question. I think the big picture answer is where you think someone has a urinary tract infection, or it's likely that they do. You can narrow it. It's maybe easier to talk about when you shouldn't send a urine culture than when you okay. should. Well, when shouldn't you? What are the common clinical scenarios where you should not send urine for culture? So, so someone, the urine infections are extremely uncommon. In fact, I think I'm right in saying that they are the most common bacterial infection, particularly in women, uh, just because mm. the difference in anatomy, you know, your urethra is much shorter, so it's much easier for the bugs to get up your urethra and start causing problems. Mm. And I guess we were recommending by NICE not to send urine culture in women who don't have a complicated UTI. So essentially they've just got some mild urinary symptoms. There's no signs of a more severe infection. They don't have any risk factors for resistance. It's not recurrent. They, uh, they aren't pregnant, they don't have a catheter. In these situations, they're very likely to have a bog standard E. coli UTI or something uh, else very common that will be sensitive. And you can just give them antibiotics and that's nice and easy for everybody. And I guess the other end of the spectrum where you shouldn't send urine culture is where you don't think they have an infection. And that might seem obvious, but I guess the classic example is people that have a catheter in place and they have 
something. So like the catheter's blocked or their urine's a bit smelly or they're just a bit muddled. Mm-hmm. And I think the reflex, because urine samples are so easy to collect, although correcting them correctly is maybe not that easy. And uh, it's a very simple test to send. It's a, it's a very commonly sent test. And so I guess the other end of it is, you know, before you send it, think, does this, do I actually think this has an, this pressure has an infection? And if it comes back with a result, you know, do I think I want to give them antibiotics? Because it's yeah. really less about, in my mind, urine culture is less about making the diagnosis of a UTI in most of the situations. And it's more about culturing a bug so that you know what antibiotic to give them. Well, it's like what you said in the previous episode, the you diagnose a UTI based on, on symptoms and people take a urine culture and if they grow something, automatically assume that that thing is causing uh, mm. a UTI. But really what you've, you've proven is that your urine culture has that bug in you know, certain, certain quantities uh, in the urine. And you know, really what you're identifying is bacteriuria. And like you say, with the catheterized patients or patients with abnormal anatomy, they can have bacteriuria and the bacteria are just sitting there not necessarily causing infection. Mm. So you can go to all the trouble of identifying the bug and getting an antibiogram and knowing what you could treat the bug with, but the urine culture is not necessarily diagnosing the UTI. You should be doing that on the basis of, of symptoms. Uh, Callum, where are these bugs coming from? Urine is normally a sterile fluid, and usually it's formed in the kidneys, descends through the ureter into the bladder, and then goes out through the urethra. It's like a waterfall. It's a one-way system. How are the bugs getting in? Yes. Before I answer that, I think there's a lot of discussion going on with our improved uh, molecular testing about, you know, what is sterile because um, maybe the urine isn't sterile, but I think that's a, a far too complicated question for right now. Uh, yeah, that yeah. I'm not... A chat for another day. Yeah, so yeah. For, for any loyal listeners who are not infection trainees and microbiologists in particular, you can treat urine as if it is effectively sterile, but effectively sterile, that's probably a good way to put it. Yeah. But bear in mind that there are probably some, you not uropathogens, but uro-commensals, yeah, yeah, that are living there normally and not doing any harm yeah. that don't really feature in. So, yeah, where are they coming from? They're coming from, well, I guess they're just coming from the outside in. And what's on your outside in that area? Well, it's, you know, your, your perineum and uh, all your bowel bugs are coming forward. So when, when we talk about samples from basically the waist down, you always sort of consider that as if it's contaminated with, with fecal organisms. And mm. so, you know, any wounds on the leg, you'll commonly see bowel bugs there. Um, and when we say bowel bugs, over and above anything else, we're looking at E. coli. E. coli is, is public enemy number one when it comes to when it comes to urinary tract infections. The other organisms that you're going to see are sort of other enterobacterales and then Staphylococcus saprophyticus and then things like beta hemolytic strep, sometimes Staph aureus, sometimes other things. We'll, we'll cover that in a bit more detail in, when we talk about the treatment 
aspects. But yeah, it's basically bowel bugs are, are coming in. Because the, the bugs that are living in your gut view you know, the, the sort of genital area and the skin round about there and uh, the glands, uh, penis and the vagina as just a fancy sort of gut that's in the uh, in a different location. It's, you know, warm, it's dark, it's wet, it's relatively anaerobic. They'll just colonize it and then they'll try and crawl up the urethra on the first chance they get. And that's why the you're, you're sort of dominated by your intrabacterialis, mm. even though the if you actually you know look at the microbiome of the vagina and the glands penis, it's not dominated by E. coli. It's not dominated by um, uh, by Klebsiella's and Pseudomonas and all the other things that you find in in, in urine samples. So I guess when we're talking, you know, what we want to focus on in this episode really is the actual urine culture itself, and maybe just give our insights, I guess, into what we've learned um, training in the lab that we didn't know as clinicians before that could be helpful for people because uh, I think it's a bit of a mystery a lot of the time what happens in the lab and uh, how that relates to the patient. And I, I guess when we talk about any lab test, there's three sort of phases that you can talk about. And mm. uh, this goes for any lab test, but I think it's maybe worth us talking about urine culture in, in these steps. So there's a pre-analytical phase, which is basically everything that happens before you do the actual tests on the sample. There's an analytical phase, which is the nitty gritty of what happens in the lab um, from the urine sort of arriving and being taken out of the pot. And then there's a post-analytical phase, which is all of the sort of how we report that culture result, how that is uh, interpreted and, and you know what, what, what goes out and how people receive that. And um, I think those three phases is, is useful to think about it like that, because it's easy to think that, you know, these are black box tests where, you know, essentially you just put the urine sample into the lab and then something happens and the result comes out and that's concrete. There, mm. There's so many steps where things can go wrong or, or be, um, you know, particularly at the beginning. So maybe we should start with the beginning then we'll move on to the middle and we'll finish with the end, which is a really sort of, it's a pretty classic way of doing it. it? Inspiring stuff, Callum. Uh, so let's start with the uh, <laughs> pre-analytical stuff. So so what kind of urine sample, common urine sample types do we have? Like what can people take? Yeah, so the, the sort of standard urine sample that we do is a midstream urine. And that's essentially, you get someone to start peeing, they discard the immediate first part, the first voided urine, but, and then without interrupting the flow, you then collect around about 10 mils of urine. You put that into a sample and send it off to the lab. So that's uh, MSU, as everybody hear about. Yeah, so that's the commonest. Is that the gold standard? It's not the gold standard. Uh, it's the recommended routine collection method. Um, the gold standard, or at least historically in papers, is something called a suprapubic aspirate, where essentially aseptically you put a needle uh, with a syringe, it, it insert that into the bladder and aspirate some urine back. Mm. But obviously... Yeah, too too invasive, I think. Yeah. Um, and difficult to do routinely. They do it sometimes in kids, don't they? I believe so. If it's, you know, it's very hard to collect urine samples in a, you know, an aseptic manner from small, uh, small children. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and so you're sometimes stuck with, you know, potentially quite significant results because every infection in that age group is, is significant and you're not sure. And so um, you might do this to, to have a more definitive answer. Yeah. And what are the other um, commonly used? Um... Yeah. So clean catch urine is essentially an MSU, but you don't discard the beginning and the end. That's pretty common as well. I, I don't know often if people really get the difference. And so when we get urine samples in the lab, and I'm also not sure that I look at a clean catch urine or a midstream urine differently when reporting it. Well, I think um, in reality, a lot of MSUs are actually clean catches yep. of urine. Uh, yeah, frankly. And that that's to do with training of the, the people that are acquiring the sample and you know, well, like the most of the time the patients collecting the sample lack thereof. It? Or it's the pretty tricky. doesn't know. Yeah. Um <laughs> And yeah, so, but the clean catch is, why would you want a clean catch urine? Well, you wouldn't necessarily want it. You would, you would accept it if you were trying to get urine off a kid, you know, so like the mum or the dad are sat there with the kid, the kid's stripped down, the nappy's off, and they've got a little sort of pot hovering delicately over this, this kid's penis, desperate for this um, uh, kid to pee. Uh, and the kid's crying and wailing because it's ill because it's got a urinary tract infection. You will accept any urine uh, at that point because the alternative is to do a super poop gastrit, which is not fun either. So that's the sort of situation where clean catch urine is um, uh, desired. Why do we want a midstream urine rather than a clean catch? Well, um, because urinary tract may be sterile, but as you get near the urethra you're getting less and less sterile and so the chances that you're going to be your urine is going to be colonized by uh by skin commensals like coagulase negative staphs goes up and up and up and so you don't want what what you don't want is for your urine culture to be overrun by those bugs or by whatever else happened to be at the in the urethral meatus at the time that you started peeing so you want the midstream sample is the all those things have been kind of peed out with the first void mm. and then you get the sterile middle bit and then you know why not the bit at the end well because they might stop peeing uh, before you acquire your sample yeah. so the midstream is the is the best and i guess that is in contrast to things like you know if we're taking urine samples for gonococcus and chlamydia because they cause a urethritis they're sort of the infection yeah, the first bit of the urine. Don't you want the yeah, first yeah, bit yeah. of the urine because you're most likely to find it. And also the way that you look for those is a very selective sort of culture or, or, or use a PCR. So it's specific. You don't worry about the, the commensal. Um, you know, that, that's answers. true. Whereas the commensals will just overrun yeah. uh, your urine sample. You know, no matter how concentrated your bugs are in your urine, they'll be swamped by... Um, by uh, whatever's in the urethra. And then then the last sample is catheter specimen of urine. And that's exactly what it sounds like. The patient's catheterized, you get urine. You are, we'll cover this in a a future episode, but you should be aware that within about 72 hours, almost all catheterized patients have their urinary tract colonized with stuff. So you will grow something. Uh, The issue there is to, um, realize that you have to interpret the, the result in context. Yeah, I think the key with catheter specimen urine is to only send it when you think the patient's got catheter 
yeah. catheter associated urinary tract infection and that that's difficult um mm. but there are some things that i think are commonly thought of as signs of catheter uh infection and some things um and a lot of those are have no correlation so whether the patient has an infection or not or like dark smelly urine well that's spoilers uh, maybe that's a teaser for the, <laughs> yeah, the maybe, CSU yeah. episode the catheter associated urinary tract infection so I mean, those are the kinds of samples that, yeah. that they send. Usually, they send them in uh, what, just like a plain white topped plastic. Yeah, tube universal or... sort of sterile container is pretty standard. Um, if that's okay, if you're in a hospital, I guess from the pre-analytical phase, you know, part of it is, you know, how the specimen was collected. Part of it is the volume. Part of it is the way in which it's transported to the lab. So the container. And if you're taking more than six hours, say, to get to the lab and the sample is not refrigerated, then if there are organisms in that sample or even like low numbers of contaminants, then that gives them the opportunity to sort of overgrow and can Mm. affect the validity of your sample. So we commonly say that if there's going to be delays in the sample getting to the lab, then they're refrigerating it or if you know that's not possible then often boric acid is used which is usually in our center a red top tube um but it'll be slightly different and in that you you need to take the exact amount of urine that the bottle asks for and then that concentration of boric acid will sort of stabilize um the organisms in the urine but shouldn't kill them although uh, it does uh, affect some organisms well it can kill them a wee bit but it's a trade-off, really, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, so, yes, the red top tubes, I think that's fairly universal. I've seen it in lots of different places. Um, but, yeah, that might be why... So, say, if you're sending in a urine culture from primary care, that might be... You, you might want to, particularly if you know that your transport time is quite a long uh, while, uh, you might be using the red top tube instead of the white top tube, which is basically what we would use in hospital because there's usually not very much of a delay Anything more to say about pre-analytical, Callum? Um, no, I, I don't think so. I think the key really is just to consider that, you know, we can look at a test and get the result at the end, but if you don't know how that was collected and uh, what type of sample it is, how it was transported, you know, all these factors, and then really the validity of the test itself is is in question from the beginning. You know, if it was taken in a non-clean way at the very beginning, then your result is meaningless. It's sort of like in computing, you talk about garbage in, garbage out, whenever you do programming. Uh, if you put bad data in, you're going to get bad a sort of analysis of that. And that's, that's equally true for any sort of diagnostic test. Yeah. So once it gets to the lab, the analytical phase starts. Um, what... What then happens? Well, that's where the magic happens. So um, most, uh, in some centers, and, and so there's talked about the, the, stand, the standards for microbiological investigation for urine is urine microscopy might take place as a sort of screening test, uh, looking for um, essentially signs of, you know, yeah, pyuria, that's it. So you, you might do um, urine microscopy looking for things like pyuria, so white blood cells in the in the urine. And that is, uh, you know, shown to to correlate with bacteria. So sometimes you can use that, but that's quite a resource intensive method. And to be honest, I don't know about your center. Our center, we just go straight to the, the urine culture step. No, we don't do it either. But I know there are some centers in the UK that do it. And 
And I've worked in places abroad where what they would do is they would, before they analyze the urine, they would take a sample and put it through the flow cytometer. Yeah. And if it had a white count of more than a set cutoff, I can't remember what it was, they would go ahead and process it. But if it was less than that, they would say, well, you're not significantly infected, so we're not going to process the sample any longer. So it was used as a sparing maneuver uh, to reduce the sort of throughput. Because if you don't have a sort of automated, you know, machine like a, you know, like a Keystra, the um, processing of, of kind of urine cultures is fairly intensive. And, yeah. you know, it's like you say, it's a really commonly taken uh, test. So it's a significant proportion of your of your lab staff's time. So if you can cut down on that by doing a quick, you know, 20-minute flow cytometry pre-prepared uh, assay and then discarding the ones that are not significantly pyuric, you can save a lot of time. But why um, Why do we not do that now? Oh, well, Callum, I can answer that for you. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess, you know, with with any sample in the lab, it's all about turnaround time. Like You, you want to get your time from the, getting the sample to picking out the result. Uh, as quick as possible so that your results are meaningful to the person managing the patient. Like that's the key, isn't it? That's what it all boils yeah. down to. And with urine cultures, that's probably the one that we look at the most. You know, it's such a common investigation. You've got that patient, they're waiting, they're uncomfortable. You want to get them that result quick. And adding in this extra step in your process adds that complexity. It's something else that can go wrong. Like flow cytometers are fairly complex machines. It can go mm. wrong. If it breaks down, then what do you do? And I think ultimately you're coming back to saying do you really rely on that or do you just go and do the urine culture which is the more definitive test anyway and i think that's the sort of direction of travel well i think now that we've got chromogenic agars which allow you to identify the organisms quite rapidly well that sounds interesting yeah. well uh, to that end um uh, let's let's talk about what happens when when we get the sample to the lab so okay what happens we'll when we have, get the sample to the lab uh, so we'll have um, uh, the sample, and next to it we'll have a agar plate that we want to sort of inoculate it on it. So we will take a, a one microliter sample uh, from the urine after giving it a shake to make sure that it's um, uh, uh, mixed uh, appropriately, uh, and then we will inoculate that one microliter sample onto uh, the agar plate, and we'll sort of spread it around using fancy techniques known to the uh, lab by medical scientists and uh, try and uh, incubate that plate for one to two days. Uh, but actually, usually at 24 hours, you'll be able to read all of these plates. So, you know, it's important to note, Jill James saying that we use one microliter. That's not all labs will like use different amounts, but it's important to know what volume of urine you're using at the beginning because uh, we do something called semi-quantitative culture. And essentially by knowing how much urine you've plated out in the beginning, when you get a number of colonies at the end, you can do some maths and essentially work out and report um, how many colony forming units there were per mil, which is a sort of, it's definitely semi-quantitative. It's not an exact science, but mm, it's, it's yeah. you know, some, put some sort of measure of concentration onto organisms. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Um, yeah, let's talk about that next. Um, but yeah, let's first talk about the the chromogenic agar. Yeah, so 
basically impregnated into the agar are substrates. And those substrates uh, can be used by some of the bacteria. And each bacteria will have different enzymes to break down different substrates. And what they've done is they've attached to the substrate a color pigment. So when, say, your E. coli picks up um, uh, galactose, then it will break it down with beta-galactosidase, and the color that's attached to that will make the E. coli colonies appear pink or red. Mm. So it's really clever because you can, at a glance, with a very, very high degree of um, accuracy, which is sort of validated, say that is an E. coli, and it's so accurate that, that you know, say on a wound swab uh, and you had an organism, you would need to culture it and then you do some sort of identification and even with the Molditoff being so quick, that adds in an extra step in complexity and complexity and things where it can get wrong. Whereas with this, the value is the, the speed at which you can say, you can glance at the, the plate or a picture of the plate sometimes and say, that's E. coli, and then put it for a sense. And, you know, that's taking seconds rather than the sort of coming off and, and all of the... All yeah, well, that yeah, that's it. So, you know, you're able to get to the ident so much faster than even with Moldy, like, say... Um, and the yeah, other thing that I think else. is worth like pointing out is that, you know, so before we we're doing this, you used to put it on sort of like somewhat selective agars would often be the way of doing it. It's so like uh, Cled or like McConkie or something like that, because most of the things you're looking for are intrabacterales. Mm. And uh, organisms can like, even if it's the same bug, can look sometimes different. You get like colonial variants. And so you end up doing this thing like, oh, is it group mix or is it not? You know, what's the identification of these organisms? And it, you know, even though it seems like, you know, you just culture the organism and then you get a pure growth and then you put it away for ID and then you get sensitivities or you do a gram, you know, there's so much extra steps. The, co- the process becomes really complex. So with the chromogenic agar, you're really simplifying your process down to the bare minimum and then your your throughput is much higher. So, you know, although yeah. the, the plate might be quite a bit more expensive than just a standard agar, mm. it's worth it. Well, it is pricey, but it is per plate, but it is sort of smooshing together colonial morphology and, you know, biochemistry, you know, uh, to to get you the diagnosis faster. Mm. You know, it's a bit like doing a mini API, yeah, but just with like two or three different things. So yeah. So so endrococci are are blue. Uh, other coliforms, so like um, things that are endrobacterales, but similar to E. coli, are sort of a darker blue purple. So they look quite mm. distinct. Like when you see them on the plate, they look very different. Yeah. And the reason that's kind of similar is that endrococci have, have beta-glucosidase uh, and coliforms also have that, but they also have beta-galactosidase, which the E. coli has. So I guess red and blue equals purple. <laughs> <laughs> and then other or things darker like... darker blue at least, yeah. Yeah, Proteus, um, Morganella, Providentia all look um, so sort of brown. And then there's some that just, you know, look the normal things like Pseudomonas. It's got a pretty classic appearance. Like any biomedical scientist will be able to see Pseudomonas on a plate and say that's Pseudomonas, um, unless it's a weird. But, but they're not doing any of this reaction stuff. They're just appearing their natural yeah. color. Is that right? Yeah, and I think Staphylococcus is the same. It's just a sort of um, normal color. Staph saprophyticus um, in that plate has um, a, a color change. But um, you know, th- we could talk all day about how good these things are. I think they're they're brilliant. Um, but uh, it probably um, doesn't interest people as much as it interests us. 
Um, well, maybe not, but yeah. So they, they they are sort of incubated for one to two days. In fact, some labs just do it for one day, and if you don't grow anything on day one, they just chuck the plate. It depends on your individual setup, but yeah, they'll then if you've got a positive culture, Callum, what can you then do? Can you can you just take the a sample from those coloured colonies and run it directly through a antibiotic susceptibility testing, or do you need to reculture them? Well, very conveniently, you can just take them straight from that chromogenic agar and put them into your um, your plate. So sometimes there's certain agars that like, you know, some selective agars, for example, where because of what's in the agar, then you can't put it sent straight into the sensitivities machine just because of the, the way it works, it will, it will be interfered with. Um, but that's another advantage to the system is that you can you can move straight. You know, you just take those colonies. Um, you need to have a sufficient volume to make up, you know, a, a dilution. Uh, so you suspend them in, a, in some sort of uh, uh, sterile liquid and then um, you... You suspend them in sterile water and then put them into your sensitivities um, in that way, in a standardized way. And then you get the, your uh, antimicrobial susceptibilities, usually in some sort of automated way. And that's that's really the, the process that you go through in this sort of analytical phase. And I think in a way, in my mind, the analytical phase is probably the bit where things go the most straightforward, the most straightforward, or like there's the least opportunity for things to go wrong. Like, I'm not gonna, not gonna lie, you know, things do go wrong in the lab. And that's why we have things like internal and external to external uh, quality assurance, and it's so much but there, there's so much focus on the lab test, and it is very um, regimented and ordered, everything's on a standard operating procedure, that there's less of that uncertainty, which you have in the there's a lot of of certainty in in what where what should happen. I think the bit where the uncertainty comes in for me in the analytical phase part of of urine um, culturing is how we interpret mixed growth, and it's maybe worth touching on that because I'm sure anybody that's seen a urine culture result will have seen a fair share of uh, mixed growth pre analytical and post analytical so phases. Maybe we should yeah. just talk about what the guidelines are for that and how we report it. Yeah, go for it. So, essentially, there are the, at least the perceived wisdom is that when you have a urinary tract infection, you're going to have one organism causing that. And so, what we expect and what's easy is when we get a urine culture, we grow one bug. It's E. coli. It's you know we do the sensitivities and report it out. So that that's very easy to to interpret and and report. What becomes more difficult is that quite often you will have more than one organism uh, that is grown. And that's particularly true in those urine samples we were talking about earlier on where it's not as cleanly co um, collected. So for example, in inverted commas, clean cat's urine or um, catheter specimens of urine, these sort of things. Uh, and in those situations, you're more likely to see more than one bug. So what does that suggest? So it could be a problem of the pre-analytical phase. It could be that, you know, we didn't clean the area properly, you know, some of the skin commensals got in. It could also be the transportation time was too long and some organisms overgrew. It could be some contamination when, you know, the bottle was being put together 
or maybe the bottle wasn't properly sterile when it was put into it. That's quite unusual. Um, so how would you report that? Because I guess, you know, even if it's mixed growth, is there still a significant pathogen in there? Is there a predominant pathogen? And it comes down, so in the SMI, they, they lay out, you know, what to do in different uh, organism counts. So if you've got heavy growth, essentially it's, it, it, I'm not going to go through the details of it, but if you've got a predominant growth of one organism, even if there's other things growing, then you essentially work that one up and uh, you report it as possible UTI um, if it's a sort of clean catch urine or probable colonization if it's a CSU, if there's one, uh, if there's sort of more than one organism. Mm. Um, and uh, uh, if you've got more than like three or more organisms, then generally just report that as uh, faulty collection, you know, or transport. There's a, there's a contaminant uh, there. Um, so yeah, the reporting is slightly different depending on the type of sample that is sent, uh, which is <laughs> talking about pre-analytics. Maybe we didn't talk about one thing was that uh, something that's really important in the lab processing to get it right is calling the sample what it was. So if it's a CSU saying it's a CSU rather than MSU, and that, yeah. that goes wrong all the time. And the other thing is putting in some clinical details. Uh, because that if we know what the clinical details are, so for example, if the clinical details say pyelonephritis, then the organisms, you know, the sample will be worked up slightly differently than if it just says um, dot, 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 or, um, you know, smelly urine. You know, you, you, you get the point. Like that, that, that clinical correlation of the sample is, is really important, but I think really underappreciated how, how important it is. Mm. Okay. Um, so you get a uh, sample and you're growing something, say it's a monomicrobial sample, so you're pretty sure this is the causative organism uh, of it. And uh, what would you... Let's, let's talk a little sec for our cutoff for significant growth and, and no significant growth. Mm. Um, so sometimes this gets put out into the report. So like uh, in, in Nador South, the um, level of, of um, the, or the number of organisms is reported as, as number of colony forming units per mil and colony forming units is just a, um, uh, you know, viable organisms that could, you know, replicate and form a colony if given the opportunity. And, you know, I, I mentioned there that we take a one microliter uh, sample well that's one thousandth of a milliliter so uh, 10 to the 5 or 100,000 uh, colony forming units per mil for a one microliter sample that should produce 100 colony forming units and that's you know uh, countable on a on an agar plate yeah nobody nobody's taking and counting 100 colonies I, I, basically no. a colony is just one little blob of bacteria on a plate or fungus or something else so let me ask you then, Callum, why 10 to the 5? Why not 10 to the 4 or 10 to the 3? Yeah, it's arbitrary, isn't it? Like, we, there is a need when we report tests for cutoff values. And I think the, the, the general understanding outside the lab is tests are positive or negative. And that's the way that we report them. And that's kind of, we kind of need to draw the line somewhere, don't you? 
But the reality is on any test, so urine culture is the same, but you know, something like say a PCR for COVID. Oh no, I've talked about COVID on the podcast. We never talk about COVID. Yeah. Um, you know, Banned. there is a point that you determine, which is arbitrary, where you say this is positive and this is negative. And there'll be some negatives that are just below the positive line. There'll be some positives just above it. Well, I mean, it's it's not arbitrary. It has been chosen with some care, but usually it's with reference to a normal range yeah, for a bunch of tests. Maybe arbitrary is the wrong word, but you, you choose a cutoff value for positive or negative in tests based on trying to optimize your sensitivity and specificity. So essentially, the lower your cutoff value is, so say in your example, the lower we called positive, the more sensitive it would be, the more likely we are to pick up those sort of low-level positives, but the less specific the test would be. So the more likely we are to call something a urinary tract infection or call something a significant growth when it is yeah. not. Yeah, so really, you know, because we're in the lab and we're sort of one step back from the patient, we're not really diagnosing UTI, like we said before, we're diagnosing bacteriuria, but what do you call a significant bacteriuria? So a bit of, bit of history time now. So the 10 to the 5 is based on something called the CAS criterion. And uh, this was a, a physician, uh, Edward CAS, who did loads and loads of work on urinary cultures in the 50s. And he found that a bunch of people that were, uh, you know, uh, when, when people died, they, they got a, an autopsy much more rapidly there. Uh, and he was finding a lot of people with undiagnosed pyelonephritis and sort of renal tract damage. And he kind of was worried about, uh, you know, something of a silent epidemic of people with undiagnosed urinary tract sepsis in, in particular. And mind, this was in the the first decade that antibiotics were really being used in anger. Uh, and so before that, there was, you know, there was basically no cure for, for these infections. And he kind of got the idea that maybe I'll, I'll start quantifying bacteria in the urine as a way of diagnosing pyelonephritis. So if the bacteria is above a certain value, pyelonephritis will be more likely. And he kind of based that on sort of epidemiological studies that he did and, and tried to tell between contamination and infection, because of course he knew contamination was going to be a problem. Uh, and, and the sort of cutoffs that he chose was based on, on E. coli, which is fair enough because it's the most rap uh, commonly isolated organism, which, which multiply quite rapidly. Their doubling time is about every 20 minutes in ideal, ideal conditions. And so he then, you know, tried to, he, he published a, a bunch of papers sort of saying that for kind of making the association between pyelonephritis and higher uh, urine CFU counts. And the cutoff that he chose um, was 10 to the 5, or 100,000 or more uh, colony-forming units per, uh, per mil. Now, he could have chosen you know, 10 to the 4, which is 10,000, uh, or more, or 10 to the 3, which is 1,000. Um, but he, you know, the, the association was kind of less right there. But that's, this is going back to what you were saying, Calma, about it being semi-quantitative, because it's sort of not a, it's not, it's not qualitative like a, you know, a, a PCR with a, a set cutoff value, it's either positive or negative, and it's not quantitative like, you know, something like a CRP, for example. There's, you could measure the, calling form units quantitatively, but then you have to apply a sort of cutoff at a certain level. And he chose 10 to the 5. 
because that was where the association started to be really uh, common in his studies. Okay, so that's it sorted. Um, should we move on? No, let's not move on, Callum. Oh, um, what do you mean? Ten to, I've heard 10 to the 5 is the cutoff that we should use, and that's fine. Well, no, because you, you mentioned this in, in your analysis paralysis, <laughs> that when you were looking for uh, sensitivity testing, that 10 to the 4 was the better kind of breakpoint for, uh, for diagnosing UTI particularly with reference to them. But people have kind of come back to this um, in kind of later years, because of course all this was done in the 50s with 50s technology. People came back later and sort of decided and uh, had, a, had another look at the data and sort of said, well, at what point are you, should we be using now to diagnose sort of cystitis and apply modern statistical techniques um, to the data that they've got? The because the the ten to the five cutoff was uh, so we don't miss pyelonephritis and equal our pyelonephritis at that. It was sort of um, thought that maybe the ten to the five was maybe a little bit too high, and that for diagnosing our everyday UTIs, um, maybe a lower cutoff would be more appropriate. Yeah, I wonder if there's something there about access in the UK anyway to healthcare is is free and relatively easy uh, you know not not going to say it's easy so people present with much lower burden of disease uh, and also you know i guess historically in the 50s you know a lot more tb around and uh, other reasons why people might have pyelonephritis essentially what people have done is they've gone to uh, groups of young women essentially that had symptoms of cystitis so they're symptomatic and they did paired urine and in-out catheter samples. And the idea was they were trying to correlate what they were doing, what, what was happening in that sort of urine, the midstream urine culture, and uh, the sort of gold uh, or slightly more sterile sample of putting a catheter into the bladder and taking a sample that way. And essentially, as I said earlier on, the lower the organism count that you take as significant, the higher your sensitivity but the worse your specificity um, would be. So they went all the way down to greater than or equal 10 colony forming units per mil, mm-hmm. which if you're only taking one microliter is, you know, you might even get that on some of your samples. So that's, that's you know, that's how rare is that? Is just a bit of a chance if you get even one colony from that. And there they were finding a 99% sensitivity um, for picking up, you know, people that they were calling a, a true positive but their specificity was only 86%. So there was quite a few people that they were saying, you know, we think you've got a urinary tract infection when, you know, maybe a more reliable test was saying uh, no. I mean, I don't know about the Cam because uh, 86% specificity is actually pretty good in, well, yeah. in most other circles. Um, but it, it's, as you say, the sense and the spec, they've got, there's a trade-off and, and usually that, that trade-off, leads to the the choosing of a, of a breakpoint, usually with a rock curve being uh, being utilized at some point. Yeah. Whereas if they went up to greater than equal to 10 to the 5, so the sort of more traditional one, then they were looking at only 60% sensitivity, but the specificity was very high at 99%. Yeah. Now, I think the way we, we approach it is essentially, you know, if it's greater than 10 to the 5 and it's one organism, yes, that's a UTI. If it's somewhere in the range of 10 to the 3 to 10 to the 4, you're saying it's a possible UTI, you need to correlate it to the symptoms, you know, small numbers. And then lower than that, you probably don't going to pick it up if only taking one microliter. 
So do you really need to worry about it? Um, which is kind of a, a bit of an odds in a way to a way that we approach such other cultures. Like if we go back to our back to if we go back to back to bacteremia. Is it too many backs? Then we were talking a lot about how the volume of blood was really important for your sensitivity. Mm. And so then you're left thinking, well, if we really want to pick up people of a UTI, would we not just culture more urine? So you can or concentrate down things and, and do pellets and that sort of thing. But well, you could do, or you could just then lower your 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 cutoff. Yeah. So I mean, if you use ten to the three on this uh, paper, which we'll include in the show notes. Your SENS was 88%, which is pretty impressive. And your specificity was 95%, which was also very impressive. And then if we, we just move over to the positive predictive values and just take the 10 to the 1, 10 to the 3, and 10 to the 5 cutoffs. So the uh, positive predictive values were, were 92, 96, and 99% for 10 to the 1, 3, and 5. And then the negative predictive values were 99 84 and 62 percent respectively so obviously that that middle value the 10 to the 3 would give you a positive predictive value of 96 percent and negative predictive value of 84 which seems to me to be the the optimal cutoff there but that, that's two orders of magnitude less than our uh, our presumed our, our current level of, of 10 to the 5 yeah we do culture down lower but um and I guess it's worth saying as well that it's not as simple as, you know, if you if you use the same patient and you take three different urine samples at different times of the day whilst they have an infection, you might get different uh, organism counts. And there's lots of things that have been shown to affect the organism count that you're going to get in urine infection. So, you know, things like how much they've been drinking. So if you, you know, got someone with a UTI and you say drink lots of urine and it might help it clear quicker, then you probably expect them to have lower... Uh, you know, it makes sense. You're diluting out the urine, so mm-hmm. we're going to pick up less urine. So actually, the, you're less likely to get a bug, maybe, um, which is kind of strange to think about it that way. Also, mm-hmm. if you've given someone antibiotics, just like in any other infection, then you're much more likely to have a negative culture. Yeah, and be- and because the antibiotics that we use concentrate into urine, and that's why we use them, even a relatively innocuous thing like trimethoprim will functionally sterilize the urinary tract. Um, and you won't be able to grow anything out of it. Um, yeah, particularly that urine sample sitting for a long time and then sort of bathing in an antibiotic soup. Yes. <laughs> yeah, trying yeah. to get that sample before your antibiotics is, is really important. Mm, yeah. Um, it's not really much value if someone's on systemic antimicrobials to taking a urine sample. You know, you see that happening sometimes, you know, inpatient, they're on Tazacin or something, and they spike a fever, so they get a septic screen. So you take blood cultures, which, you know, is sensible. Um, urine cultures, hmm, I'm not sure how, how much value that's got if they don't have urinary tract symptoms. Yeah, this is going off topic, a, a sidebar, uh, if you will, but people might think, well, what's the difference between blood and urine? The difference is that your antibiotic will be concentrated several times in the urine relative to the volume in the blood. And so if you're taking blood cultures, you you know, you, you might argue that the tazosin would suppress growth of sensitive organisms, fine, but you might be taking it for uh, insensitive or resistant organisms. But in the urine, you get concentrations of the antibiotic that are so much higher than that of, of plasma uh, that even organisms with required resistance to the antibiotic that the patient's on may have their growth inhibited just because there's so much of the antibiotic that they can't overcome it. 
Hmm. That's a uh, very much a tangent. Uh, so we've talked about the analytical phase, I think, pretty much to death. I don't think we've got anything else to say in it, do we? Oh, there's so much more. We could we could talk about this for a whole day, James. There's, there's this podcast is already so infection. much longer than I thought it was going to be. We just need to move on. <laughs> So what about is is there anything else that we need to mention or can we move on to post analytical? No, I think we, I think we can move on. So the post analytical phase so the lab has done their duty. We've got the results. We've got the sensitivities to the bug. What now? So now essentially there will be a, a sort of quality check on that sample. So the machine that does the susceptibilities, there'll be some automatic checking to make sure, like, you know, does this pattern of antimicrobial susceptibility fit with what we know this organism should usually have? So it's sort of like a basic sense checking that goes on. And then that urine sample will go to, um, depending on your center, it might be automatically authorized out with something called like rules-based authorization. Um, so sort of simple samples will be under that pattern. So say it's an E. coli urinary tract infection and it's fully sensitive. Bang, out it goes, it's authorized, it's done. Yeah. And you're getting into more complex samples or you know niche patient groups like say a neonate or something, then that will go to somebody with, with sort of the training to, to um, interpret and report that. So whether that's a sort of advanced biomedical scientist or a clinical scientist or microbiologist or someone, then they will essentially have a, a think about the clinical situation. What's on the patient's notes? Is there any allergies? What's the resistance pattern? And then authorize uh, out the reporting of certain antimicrobial susceptibilities. And that part of it is really around antimicrobial stewardship. So we know that that is an effective way to sort of guide clinicians to choose antibiotics that we want to, we want people to use essentially. So that's to do with the, I think we've talked about this before, that the sort of huge um, criteria for different antimicrobials in, ter in terms of um, what are the three categories again, Jim? Oh, you mean the aware, uh, access, watch, and reserve. So we should be using access whenever we can, watch if we need to, and reserve as an absolute last resort. And, you know, what counts as an access, loyal listeners? Stuff like trimethoprim, nitrofurantoin, amoxicillin, uh, cotramoxazole uh, is in there, gentamicin is in there as an IV option. Mm. You know, like, you, you can cure just most UTI, certainly in the UK, with those uh, agents uh, on their own. And then for, for watch are the cephalosporins, including cephalexin, which is a shame. It should really be accessed, to be honest with you. And uh, quinolones uh, are, are in there as well. And then the kind of hoity-toity stuff is, is reserve. Hoity-toity. Yeah. <laughs> I learned that in a while. Well, we're, we're talking about uh, all that in a future episode. So <laughs> all I think that hoity-toity. Um, the but yeah the post analytic phase sort of blends sort of into the advice uh, that we're given the clinical teams uh, as well so it sort of like kind of molds into treatment uh, of UTIs and and how you want to do that and the culture that you want to instill in your hospital or local area because they'll be going out to GPs too uh, about how you want uh, UTIs to be managed on your patch. Uh, but that is a story for another time. 
it's worth saying that the post-analytical phase of a, of a result doesn't end in the lab. So that is sort of coming into, you know, the people reading the result. And that's, I think, another thing that's worth talking about. So, you know, the, the, all this has happened and the, the sample has been taken in the, in the clinical picture that, that exists uh, in the way that it has been taken. It's processed in a set way and it's reviewed and reported. And then the, the result lands on someone's desk. And that person is often not the person who uh, asked for the urine sample to be sent or took it, spoke to the patient knowing that don't really have the insight into the lab side. And, and so you're left with this result, which is, you know, pretty black and white. And even I think when it's reported in the terms of like possible UTI, I don't know how many people would read into that and understand, you know, why that's being said. Um, I certainly didn't understand that before I came to the lab and, and it was a complete mystery. Mm. And it, what ends up happening is you see, okay, there's an organism grown, I will treat it. And I think it's maybe just about walking that back a little bit and saying a number of things. So, you know, if your patient is, is compass mentis and can, can, can describe their symptoms, do they, do they actually still ill, you know, or, you know, do they, do they need an antibiotic? Because, a lot of UTIs will resolve on their own. So there's a whole step there after the, the urine sample is received. Uh, and I think it's easy to think that that's simple, but there is, there's a fair bit of complexity in, in how we actually manage urinary tract infection. Mm. But we've rattled on long enough about this urine culture. And I, I hope that you maybe have learned something new whether whether you work in the lab or, or outside of the lab or um you're not working at all maybe you're retired or on holiday all right now you're just waffling i am waffling i wouldn't want waffle though all right questions comments suggestions why don't you send them into idiots podcasting at gmail.com have a five-star review in your pocket calm and i would love to have it please drop it in your podcast player of choice we tweet at idiots underscore pod. And if you want to support the show directly, you may now do so. There's a link in the description. But until next time, I'm Jane. I'm Calm. I've, I've just this minute thought of the pun for the next episode. Something to look forward to. See you then. Bye. Now that the episode's done, we hope you learn and had lots of fun. So go forth and treat people with some of what you now know.